Section 15 of Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young by Jacob Abbott. Commendation and Encouragement, Part 2. Origin of the Error. The idea on which this mode of treatment is founded, namely that it is a matter of course that children should do right, so that when they do right there is nothing to be said, and that doing wrong is the abnormal condition and exceptional action which alone requires the parent to interfere, is to a great extent a mistake. Indeed, the matter of course is all the other way. A babe will seize the plaything of another babe without the least compunction long after it is keenly alive to the injustice and wrongfulness of having its own playthings taken by any other child. So in regard to the truth. The first impulse of all children, when they have just acquired the use of language, is to use it in such a way as to affect their object for the time being, without any sense of the sacred obligation of making the words always correspond truly with the facts. The principles of doing justice to the rights of others to one's own damage, and of speaking the truth when falsehood would serve the present purpose better, are principles that are developed or acquired by slow degrees, and at a later period. I say developed or acquired, for different classes of metaphysicians and theologians entertain different theories in respect to the way by which the ideas of right and of duty enter into the human mind. But all will agree in this, that whatever may be the origin of the moral sense in man, it does not appear as a practical element of control for the conduct, till some time after the animal appetites and passions have begun to exercise their power. Whether we regard this sense as arising from a development within of a latent principle of the soul, or as an essential element of the inherited and native constitution of man, though remaining for a time embryonic and inert, or as a habit acquired under the influence of instruction and example, all will admit that the period of its appearance as a perceptible motive of action is so delayed and the time required for its attaining sufficient strength to exercise any real and effectual control over the conduct extends over so many of the earlier years of life that no very material help in governing the appetites and passions and impulses can be reasonably expected from it at a very early period. Indeed, conscience, so far as its existence is manifested at all in childhood, seems to show itself chiefly in the form of the simple fear of detection in what there is reason to suppose will lead, if discovered, to reproaches or punishment. At any rate, the moral sense in childhood, whatever may be our philosophy in respect to the origin and the nature of it, cannot be regarded as a strong and settled principle on which we can throw the responsibility of regulating the conduct and holding it sternly to its obligations. It is, on the contrary, a very tender plant, slowly coming forward to the development of its beauty and its power, and requiring the most gentle fostering and care on the part of those entrusted with the training of the infant mind, and the influence of commendation and encouragement when the embryo monitor succeeds in its incipient and feeble efforts will be far more effectual in promoting its development than that of censure and punishment when it fails. Important Caution for every good thing there seems to be something in its form and semblance that is spurious and bad, 
The principle brought to view in this chapter has its counterfeit in the indiscriminate praise and flattery of children by their parents, which only makes them self-conceited and vain, without at all promoting any good end. The distinction between the two might be easily pointed out, if time and space permitted, but the intelligent parent, who has rightly comprehended the method of management here described, and the spirit in which the process of applying it is to be made, will be in no danger of confounding one with the other. This principle of noticing and commending, within proper limits and restrictions, what is right, rather than finding fault with what is wrong, will be found to be as important in the work of instruction as in the regulation of conduct. We have, in fact, a very good opportunity of comparing the two systems, as it is a curious fact that in certain things it is almost the universal custom to adopt one method, and in certain others the other. The two methods exemplified. There are, for example, two arts which children have to learn in the process of their mental and physical development, in which their faults, errors, and deficiencies are never pointed out, but in the dealings of their parents with them all is commendation and encouragement. They are the arts of walking and talking. The first time that a child attempts to walk alone, what a feeble, staggering, and awkward exhibition it makes! And yet its mother shows, by the excitement of her countenance and the delight expressed by her exclamations, how pleased she is with the performance. And she, perhaps, even calls in persons from the next room to see how well the baby can walk. Not a word about imperfections and failings, not a word about the tottering, the awkward reaching out of arms to preserve the balance the crookedness of the way, the anxious expression of the countenance, or any other faults. These are left to correct themselves by the continued practice which encouragement is sure to lead to. It is true that words would not be available in such a case for fault-finding, for a child when learning to walk would be too young to understand them. But the parent's sense of the imperfections of the performance might be expressed in looks and gestures which the child would understand but he sees, on the contrary, nothing but indications of satisfaction and pleasure, and it is very manifest how much he is encouraged by them. Seeing the pleasure which his efforts give to the spectators, he is made proud and happy by his success, and goes on making efforts to improve with alacrity and delight. It is the same with learning to talk. The mistakes, deficiencies, and errors of the first rude attempts are seldom noticed, and still more seldom pointed out by the parent. On the contrary, the child takes the impression, from the readiness with which its words are understood, and the delight it evidently gives its mother to hear them, that it is going on triumphantly in its work of learning to talk, instead of feeling that its attempts are only tolerated because they are made by such a little child, and that they require a vast amount of correction, alteration, and improvement. Indeed, so far from criticizing and pointing out the errors and faults, the mother very frequently meets the child half-way in its progress, by actually adopting the faults and errors herself in her replies, so that when the little beginner in the use of language, as he wakes up in his crib and stretching out his hands to his mother, says, I want to get up, she comes to him and replies, her face beaming with delight, My little darling, you shall get up, thus filling his mind with happiness at the idea that his mother is not only pleased that he attempts to speak, but is fully satisfied, and more than satisfied, with his success. The result is that in learning to walk and to talk, children always go forward with alacrity and ardor. 
they practiced continually and spontaneously requiring no promises of reward to allure them to effort and no threats of punishment to overcome repugnance or aversion it might be too much to say that the rapidity of their progress and the pleasure which they experience in making it are owing wholly to the commendation and encouragement they receive for other causes may cooperate with these but it is certain that these influences contribute very essentially to the result there can be no doubt at all that if it were possible for a mother to stop her child in its efforts to learn to walk and to talk and explain to it no matter how kindly all its shortcomings failures and mistakes and were to make this her daily and habitual practice the consequence would be not only a great diminution of the ardor and animation of the little pupil and pressing forward in its work but also a great retardation in its progress example of the other method let us now for the more full understanding of the subject go to the other extreme and consider a case in which the management is as far as possible removed from that above referred to we cannot have a better example than the method often adopted in schools and seminaries for teaching composition in other words the art of expressing one's thoughts in written language an art which one would suppose to be so analogous to that of learning to talk that is to express one's thoughts in oral language that the method which was found so eminently successful in the one would be naturally resorted to in the other instead of that the method often pursued is exactly the reverse the pupil having with infinite difficulty and with many forebodings and anxious fears made his first attempt brings it to his teacher the teacher if he is a kind-hearted and considerate man perhaps briefly commends the effort with some such dubious and equivocal praise as it is very well for a beginner or as good a composition as could be expected at the first attempt and then proceeds to go over the exercise in a cool and deliberate manner with the view of discovering and bringing out clearly and conspicuously to the view not only of the little author himself but often of all his classmates and friends every imperfection failure mistake omission or other fault which a rigid scrutiny can detect in the performance however kindly he may do this and however gentle the tones of his voice still the work is criticism and fault-finding from beginning to end the boy sits on thorns and nettles while submitting to the operation and when he takes his marked and corrected manuscript to his seat he feels mortified and ashamed and is often hopelessly discouraged how faults are to be corrected some one may perhaps say that pointing out the errors and faults of pupils is absolutely essential to their progress inasmuch as unless they are made to see what their faults are they cannot be expected to correct them i admit that this is true to a certain extent but by no means to so great an extent as is often supposed there are a great many ways of teaching pupils to do better what they are going to do besides showing them the faults in what they have already done thus without pointing out the errors and faults which he observes the teacher may only refer to and commend what is right while he at the same time observes and remembers the prevailing faults with a view of adapting his future instructions to the removal of them these instructions when given will take the form of course of general information on the art of expressing one's thoughts in writing and on the faults and errors to be avoided perhaps without any or at least very little allusion to those which the pupils themselves had committed instruction thus given while it will have at least an equal tendency with the other mode to form the pupils to habits of correctness and accuracy 
will not have the effect upon their mind of disparagement of what they have already done but rather of aid and encouragement for them in regard to what they are next to do in following the instructions thus given them the pupils will as it were leave the faults previously committed behind them being even in many instances unconscious perhaps of their having themselves ever committed them the ingenious mother will find various modes analogous to this of leading her children forward into what is right without at all disturbing their minds by censure of what is wrong a course which it is perfectly safe to pursue in the case of all errors and faults which result from inadvertence or immaturity there is doubtless another class of faults those of wilful carelessness or neglect which must be specially pointed out to the attention of the delinquents and a degree of discredit attached to the commission of them and perhaps in special cases some kind of punishment imposed as the most proper corrective of the evil and yet even in cases of carelessness and neglect of duty it will generally be found much more easy to awaken ambition and a desire to improve in a child by discovering if possible something good in his work and commending that as an encouragement to him to make greater exertion the next time than to attempt to cure him of his negligence by calling his attention to the faults which he has committed as subjects of censure however obvious the faults may be and however deserving of blame the advice however made in this chapter to employ commendation and encouragement to a great extent rather than criticism and fault-finding in the management and instruction of children must like all other general counsels of the kind be held subject to all proper limitations and restrictions some mother may perhaps object to what is here advanced saying if i am always indiscriminately praising my child's doings he will become self-conceited and vain and he will cease to make progress being satisfied with what he has already attained of course he will and therefore you must take care not to be always and indiscriminately praising him you must exercise tact and good judgment or at any rate common sense in properly proportioning your criticism and your praise there are no principles of management however sound which may not be so exaggerated or followed with so blind a disregard of attendant circumstances as to produce more harm than good it must be especially borne in mind that the counsels here given in relation to curing the faults of children by dealing more with what is good in them than what is bad are intended to apply to faults of ignorance inadvertence or habit only and not to acts of known and wilful wrong when we come to cases of deliberate and intentional disobedience to a parent's commands or open resistance to his authority something different or at least something more is required the principle of universal application in conclusion it is proper to add that the principle of influencing human character and action by noticing and commending what is right rather than finding fault with what is wrong is of universal application with the mature as well as with the young the susceptibility to this influence is in full operation in the minds of all men everywhere and acting upon it will lead to the same results in all the relations of society the way to awaken a penurious man to the performance of generous deeds is not by remonstrating with him however kindly on his penuriousness but by watching his conduct till we find some act that bears some semblance of liberality and commending him for that if you have a neighbor who is surly and troublesome tell him that he is so and you make him worse than ever but watch for some occasion in which he shows you some little kindness 
and thank him cordially for such a good neighborly act, and he will feel a strong desire to repeat it. If mankind universally understood this principle, and would generally act upon it in their dealings with others, of course with such limitations and restrictions as good sense and sound judgment would impose, the world would not only go on much more smoothly and harmoniously than it does now, but the progress of improvement would, I think, in all respects, be infinitely more rapid. End of section 15